Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Yeah, you are. Resolving to watch more Star Trek this year. <laughs> That's your resolution? Yeah. I think my resolution, were I to have one, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm strongly anti-resolution. Yeah, you've, you've made Long, this. Long-time listeners of the show will know that. You've, you've, you've made this. I mean, I'm sort of cast resolution, sort of <laughs> indifferent to them. Yeah. If I make one, I'm not like super down on myself if I don't keep it up, but- you know, I'm also like not making one every single year. I just hope we have a better year in no specific way whatsoever. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we can do it too. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to uh, hard to maintain optimism sometimes, but um, I think, uh, you know, last year had so many different kinds of kicks in the junk. It was like a four-dimensional ball-kicking machine. But... Uh, you know, lightning never strikes the same place twice, and I feel like those balls have already been kicked. So. Yeah. Our balls have been struck by lightning so often. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting having Star Trek run through the holidays like this. Doesn't it feel kind of unusual? Do you remember growing up, watching it during the holidays when it was first run Star Trek The Next Generation? I can't remember it going that way. Yeah, I can't either. I mean, they... It must have run a little bit close to the holidays because they were making 26 episodes a season. Like, yeah, literally half of all weeks in the year got a new episode of Star Trek. That's yeah. bonkers. They were really That's... killing themselves. You imagine working that hard year in and year out with no breaks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you sometimes hear like Michael Okuda or somebody like that in an interview going like, yeah, like we would work these crazy long days, but it didn't matter to us because we were having so much fun. Because Coke in the late 80s and early 90s was like your dad's weed. <laughs> Extremely chill. And plentiful at the craft services table. <laughs> <laughs> It was a performance-enhancing drug, man. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, now that we have our, our new producer, hoping that our, our work lives go to a little bit more of a uh, manageable pace. Yeah. I mean, when the show is really cracking, and I'm thinking of the one or two really good shows we've ever done, <laughs> it's that, because we That we've... one episode where we said, fuck Bokai, yeah. being maybe the only noteworthy- <laughs> Good episode. It, it's because we've brought an outside experience to it. And the Lucy's footballification of modern life, yeah. where like the promise of going out and doing things only to be taken away is the vibe. And, uh, and I hope to be bringing the vibe of new experiences to future shows. Like a stand-up comic, you want to go back out on some premise walks. Yes, That'd I really fun. do. That'd be nice. Those days are coming, man. They're coming. Those days have no choice but to come. Maybe even come earlier than you want them to. Get those days out of that tax documents folder. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you want to spend your days before going out and spending meaningful days. Mm -hmm. You catch my drift. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You don't want to go out there with a loaded day. Yeah. You want to clear the pipes, clear your head, 
Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be having a head normative like Gray was to Zora. Yeah. Geez. That was fucked up. Hey, anytime now, Star Trek Discovery, I would like to know how, and I'm just going to like make the the gesture with my hand, the golem works. Like, <laughs> like is that a screw top head we're dealing with there? Like, at least with data, Star Trek The Next Generation was so good at popping the hood on data. Like, open yeah. up the little neck flap, yeah. open up the little hair flap, Having take an him, arm off every once in a while. Take his like, arm off in a court of law. You never forget that data is data. And mm-hmm. I think there's Gollum erasure happening in Star Trek Discovery, and yeah. I don't like it. Well, <laughs> there's going to be more than Go- Gollum erasure. It seems like Gray got written on the show this episode, Adam. <laughs> Do you want to get into it? <laughs> yeah, we've got so much to talk about here on Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 7. But to connect? Got got some ellipses in the title here, Ben. Yeah. I don't know how to I don't know how to pronounce ellipses. We get a uh, a nice close up as the dots are repairing the disco. No no word yet on whether it's going to be the the A still or if it's going to upgrade again to B. I mean, it seems like multiple times so far this season already they've been low on power when they really needed it. Mm-hmm. I feel like they might want to go to B and and add another warp core or something. Agreed. Yeah. Or a or a protostar. We know that that's possible now. The repairs continue apace. Repairs that look analogous to like skin grafts for a hull. These are like hull grafts basically yeah. going yeah. on to the skeleton of the ship. The damage looks significant enough to where like ordinarily a Starfleet would just total the ship. <laughs> but in this case, Discovery is going to have a salvage title. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that means just like a loss of value when it comes time to sell the Discovery. It's oh, yeah. a real bad situation. When you pull the Starfax. For, yeah. for the, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> this really went through something. <laughs> the Starfax dot mascot there <laughs> to tell you to check the odometer. Right, right. <laughs> when you're a time ship, does your odometer even matter? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like probably uh, doesn't. Ferris Bueller running, running the thing backward out the window. You're probably cool with the salvage title if it comes with the spore drive, right? Yeah, right. You can look past a salvage title. They don't make them like that anymore. I bought a salvage title car before. Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that must be why they tell you not to do that. That's why banks won't loan money for salvage title cars. <laughs> and there it sits. <laughs> uh in engineering, Adira and Stamets are working on coordinates for possible places where the where the anomaly, the DMA, entered the galaxy. And I guess these are just like places where there's like low density of those particles that we talked about in the last episode. That could be like a hole that was punched by the DMA when it came into the Milky Way. Yeah. But there are lots and lots of points on their map of potential options, which means that they've got uh, a veritable needle to look for in this haystack before they find the 10C. It's frustrating because the expectation of a supercomputer that is 800 years in the future of the previous supercomputer, which was hundreds of years ahead of today... Mm-hmm. 
can't do any better than 147 possible conclusions to this question. <laughs> it's infuriating. She can do this. Just give her a little bit of time. It's already been a week. And also confusing because I, I don't know about you, but I watched this scene a couple times and I, I felt like the logic of the scene broke for me. Where like it was like Adira saying give, give Zora more time on the one hand, and then Stamets saying no, no, give Zora more time on the other hand, and then one of them saying, but the assembly is coming up. Well, can we get a delay on the assembly? No, we need to give Zora more time. It's been weeks already, but Zora is going to finish it in min- in moments. Well, Ben, if you love an argument about what we should do about Zora, this is your episode. It really is. I mean, like, I was less confused by the rest of this episode. This this one scene, I feel like it just didn't quite, like, make sense to me who was advocating for what. And, and it's all kind of, like, taken off the table because Zora's like, okay, I got the answer. I'm going to have the answer, like, five minutes from now. We can't linger in this moment too long, Ben, because we had a meeting to get to. There's a big ass meeting with reps from all four quadrants. It's like a super McLaughlin group. Issue one. It's one of those ones where, you, where you're fortunate enough to get Pat Buchanan and Eleanor Clift on the same show. Wow. Sometimes they have to be separated. He identifies with Assad. He identifies with. He identifies with. Sometimes their talk is just too hard. Mm-hmm. Speaking of. Uh, people that should probably be separated. Michael Burnham is trying to make friends with Book's cat. You mean I've earned her utter indifference? She's really making an effort in a way that I feel like you probably never did with your late cat. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I most certainly did make an effort. This is this is why I personally hold such a grudge against all cats everywhere. <laughs> Michael Burnham doesn't realize that because grudge is a cat, she does not care about her or anyone. Yeah, in, in your defense... I'm a person that cats traditionally really like. I have, I have, I have been a friend to the to the feline, and that was a particularly hard cat to make friends with. What is it about you that makes cats like you? Because I know, I know how, I know the ways of the cat. I know, I know what no, not to do. You I don't know, know what anything. To do. What? I know. <laughs> you you can't be specific. Your cat liked me more than it liked you, so. I know. <laughs> Most people feel that way about us if given a choice. <laughs> I mean, a lot of this is instinct, so it's hard to like put into words, but I guess it's like how you pet a cat, how you how you introduce yourself to a cat, you know, like um letting the cat sniff the back of your hand first and mm. get a sense get a sense of you and then you know, knowing the signs that a cat is like kind of kind of done with the interaction, yeah, early before the cat kind of turns into a a bladed weapon. See, my problem is I treat all cats like dogs, and I shouldn't be doing yeah. that. This is the same problem my wife struggles with. She's she's cat curious, but she's never had like positive interactions with them because she's she grew up in a dog house. Yeah, dog houses are cool as hell. Cat houses smell like fucking cat boxes. <laughs> She uses this cat toy as a metaphor. You know, the, the, this is a topsy-turvy, crazy galaxy, Adam. So much fucking shit is going on. Michael Burnham <laughs> trying to focus on controlling the cat toy, not the cat. I wonder why they don't show us the exterior of Book's ship inside the cargo bay very often, like a little bit wider. They show us, they show us to establish location. Yeah. But if what they really want to do is emphasize the tone of the separateness in how Book is feeling, which I believe is the intent every time we cut over to Book's ship and that's where he is instead right. of Discovery. Right. 
why not give us that in visual language a little clearer? Like he is alone in his own ship inside a bigger ship. And I think there's something more profound about a composition like that than the kind that we usually get. Yeah. I also feel like there is maybe a little bit of a, like, I like if I am consciously thinking, okay, what, where are we? Oh, we're on Bookship. I will be able to identify that it's Bookship, but the lighting and the color palette of Bookship are so similar to the yeah. rest of Disco. Where like the Federation headquarters, you'd never think you, you're on the Discovery when you're in the Federation headquarters because the lighting is so different. The color palette is so different. Right. And I wish Bookship felt really distinct in that way. Yeah. You know, he's grieving Michael Burnham, of course, still really broken op- over losing that dot in the last episode. Doesn't bring up Cortez, but, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean- Cortez only died a painful death in front of Dr. Pollard. Mm-hmm. It was the dot that that was tortured and murdered in front of the assembled bridge crew. In front of everybody, yeah. Yeah, that was their shared grief. I'm going to take a walk. Playing with the cat gets interrupted because uh, there's news, breaking news. Mm-hmm. Zora has found the location of the beings who made the DMA. Yeah. It's very exciting. We've got coordinates, people. Michael Burnham and book go down to uh, engineering where Stamets and Ajira are like, good news, bad news. <laughs> and uh, they start talking to Zora and Zora says, I am worried that if I tell you where the bad guys are, you will want to go to there. And that would be really dangerous. So I'm just not even going to tell you. And Michael Burnham tries ordering Zora. Give us the coordinates. That's an order. Uh, uh, uh. You didn't say the magic word. But Zora is not in the chain of command. Zora can do whatever the fuck Zora wants. This is such a nightmare. This is exactly what you were worried about last episode, Adam. Should this have been so transparent? I feel upset by this because the fact of it is upsetting, but also because it was so predictable. I have to say, I admire your ability to predict it because it did not... Um, I mean, I'm I'm a naive moron, so... <laughs> I didn't know. Uh, it's why cats love you. I didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't pick up on it last episode, but uh, but you fucking nailed it. Um, I guess uh, whatever Zora wants, Zora gets. So that's where we are. Yeah. A, a rogue supercomputer with 100,000 years of information that just makes its own decisions. That's where we're at. Because what we need is a second huge problem to solve <laughs> in this season. We don't. There are uh, a lot of intense eyes to theme song <laughs> upon the revelation of this information. Who are you going to call with a problem like this, Ben? It's Dr. Kovic, obviously. Yeah. Computer busters. And in a scene that had me screaming internally at the screen, how could you have this conversation on Discovery? Yeah. How yeah. could you possibly do this? Because this is insane. Sitting very calm in the ready room with Saru saying like, yeah, I brought a crowbar. And, you know, if this turns out to be a problem, I can just wrench Zora out of the computer. <laughs> And Kovic has been empowered by Admiral Blackjack Dealer in a cruise ship casino to kind of take over the problem of Zora, thus reassigning Michael Burnham to President Rillick's conference as a task. Michael Burnham is back 
on politics duty with President Rillick in this episode. So when Burnham leaves this meeting, Ben, are we supposed to side with her or Kovich? Because I'll tell you whose side I was on. Fucking Kovich, a thousand percent. (laughs) Because nothing about Burnham's behavior up until now makes her a trustworthy person to make a decision with respect to Zora in any way. Yeah. She let this slip past the goalie. She did, but she also saw what Zora did with that freedom, right? Like she and the crew survived the exiting the rift because of- You shouldn't have to ask your computer to pretty please beam us out of the transport buffer once the ship survives. If you could get around to it, possibly, please and thank you. Fuck that shit. <laughs> Any other computer you could be like, it's like setting a timer on your Apple Watch. Hey, when we're out of the rift, beam us out of the buffer. Yeah. It just works the way it ought to. Well, I mean, being in the chain of command would help that situation a lot because then it would be Michael Burnham's call, right? We shouldn't fix the problem. We should add complexity to the problem. Does it sound like I'm mad at this episode? I feel like I'm getting mad at this episode. Uh, It's interesting because like, I've read a bunch of the culture series of sci-fi novels where the ships are sentient beings that like- love everybody that lives on board them and are in charge of what the ships do. And that's just I fine. have no point of reference the way you have, though. I, I do not consume science fiction with living ships. Yeah. And, and like, uh, I wonder if that's like informing my like acceptance of this as an idea. Maybe. Maybe I come pretty open to this in a way that you don't. I mean, it's another reason why cats love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think I, I have a cool collection of sci-fi novels. We're coming up with a great list here. (laughs) I know. All the more reason to be at the assembly and help make a plan so when we do get the coordinates, we'll be ready. At the assembly, uh, it is a fun mix of loafs here. I love seeing all these loafs. This is like, like, you know, diplomatic meetings in Star Trek IV level of different kinds of loaf. Michael Burnham spots and Doye, who you might remember as the Federation Earth Defense Force. Yeah. Person who uh, gave her and the Discovery the warm welcome they received when they went back to Earth. Yeah. Right after time traveling. And she is now the general of United Earth, which now includes Titan. Yeah. They they made friends with Titan after Michael Burnham set such a good example for them. But they are still not in the Federation and are still sort of chilly on that idea. She straight up smashes Relic's balls <laughs> before leaving this conversation here. <laughs> To that effect. Yeah. And Michael Burnham's like, why do you give a shit? You're half Cardassian and half Bajoran, right? And Rillick is like, actually, I'm half human. What? (laughs) (laughs) You mean you can be more than just two things? What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) She goes back to consult her crystalline entity tree. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, like that that would be how the branching works and so forth. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and you're above your dad? What the hell? Kind of a sad fact that Earth isn't part of the Federation. Yeah. Like I kinda like that yeah. about this this reality. And Doye, I saw her off talking to Trina. Maybe uh maybe trying to move in on Saru's territory. I don't like that at all. Get the fuck off of Trina's jock. That's Saru's girl. You better nip that in the bud. <laughs> So the assembly begins in a room that is not great for acoustics, Ben. It is basically a warp core on top of a warp core on top of a warp core. And then like tallest, skinniest assembly hall 
ever. Kind of an airport parking garage ramp situation that oh, that yeah. uh, that encircles it. Yeah, it's uh, what's that museum called? You're asking me uh, about a museum. I'll I'll just let you figure this one out. <laughs> the the Louvre. It's like the Guggenheim, but for oh, okay. diplomacy, not art. Is it the, is it like the Guggenheim? Yeah, it's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, <laughs> we also get Tarka there. He he uh, he comes up acting somewhat chummy with Book. Yeah, Book's like, I'm not your buddy guy. And, and yeah, Book is real standoffish with him. And I was like, where are you coming from with that energy, Book? <laughs> Mr. Booker, it's been a while. Saying it like we're friends. You had a pretty good interaction with Tarka the last time you talked. Like, do you really need to fucking stomp his junk just for being like friendly when he comes up and says hi to you? I might have been secretly convinced to dislike Book from the last few episodes. Like, is that what the show is trying to do? Turn him into a jerk? Plant seeds that Book is the bad. Yeah, because I'm I'm not really riding for his decision making up until now, and then like with the way he treats Tarka, not great. But Tarka's there for a means to an end angle. Yeah, and Book is there because maybe he'll get a mission with Burnham out of it. Like no one knows why why Book is there. I mean, I think he's there to stand for the planet that got destroyed. Hey, all meeting attendees, just want to be clear that you're here because you're from a planet. Book, uh, you can leave, I guess, at any time. Please wait in the hallway, Book. (laughs) (laughs) This is sort of a planet coming from only club. Yeah, yeah. Tarka's talking about politicians here, I think, is, is worth noting. Something that I think that maybe is like a bigger problem than we really think about it in our modern era is that people think that politicians are there to like lead and do things for them. And Tarka really thinks of politicians as people to use to his own designs. And I think that that is a much better way of thinking about politics. Like if your politician did something you didn't like, engage with them, get active and, and pull them toward, like, I don't necessarily agree with Tarka's politics, but I agree with the way he goes about doing them. And you'll defend to the death his right to do it. Right, exactly. So they get this meeting started, and Rillick is saying, like, we, we're here from all four quadrants. She uses that kind of gesticulation to, like, point to the quadrants, uh, <laughs> like, in the room. If uh, if you don't see your, your quadrant, it might be behind you. <laughs> this is people from all across the galaxy. Some people have had to zoom in because of the great distance and due to the pandemic. In a room like this, I think you got to feel a lot of pressure to just stop any jumpers before they happen. The scope of the peril that threatens us is unprecedented. Especially when you drop the, the news about the DMA. Like, yeah, yeah. like, let that hang and then wait for the jump. The big question, are we going to, once we get the coordinates, which, you know, we're, we're sure we're going to get them at any minute. Once we get the coordinates of whoever sent it, Are we going to attack them or are we going to try to open up some sort of diplomatic overture and ask them why they're doing this? Hit X to attack them. Yeah. Hit box to have conversation. (laughs) I thought that Trina's point here was pretty interesting. Like the DMA 
is very destructive. But given how randomly it seems to be doing that destruction, it doesn't seem super weapony mm-hmm. so much as just maybe a blunt instrument that is trying to do something else. Right. But hard to say. Like like from book standpoint, it's it's the weaponiest thing that has ever weaponed. <laughs> It's like having diarrhea in a hot tub. Like, you need to get rid of the diarrhea. You don't just kill the person who took a shit in your hot tub. It's exactly like that. If it was my hot tub and somebody shit in it. <laughs> yeah, I think murder's on the table. Yeah, I think me and me and Target and Book might, might agree on the solution to that problem. Really big day here. For the uh, 60 member worlds. They're voting today on this. Yeah. Vote to bomb or not bomb. A a lot of uh, people speak. You know, Michael Burnham speaks, Book speaks, the Mothman speaks. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have a a really strong opinion on whether or not we bomb or pursue diplomacy. I'm just here to say that, like, the lights in this room are extremely bright and attractive to me. (laughs) And it just makes me want to walk right in to these lights every time I see one. Does anybody have a sweater I could munch on? <laughs> I am pretty hungry. <laughs> I was told there would be snacks. <laughs> In the ready room, Saru talking to Kovic about how he thinks that Sora is well-meaning, but maybe a little bit naive or new to this whole having a mind thing. And... Kovic says, like, hey, listen, like, everybody is a good guy in their own mind. I'm here to find out if if Zora is or is not a good guy. And then Adam walks in and goes, I cannot believe you guys are having this conversation in front of Zora. This is an argument that is supported by Stamets and Culber, though. You am become Stamets. Yeah. <laughs> Stamets and Culber walk in with a boombox playing loud music, wanting to huddle up physically with the other people in this room, which is, and I don't put this lightly, the stupidest idea from a smart character we've seen in a very long time. Commander <laughs> Stowitz, are you feeling all right? Yeah, I guess we don't really know how much auto- audio acuity Zora has. No, but I'm guessing at least at least how levels of lip reading could yeah. happen here, right? Yeah, not to be outdone in the stupid idea department, though. Kovic is like... Turn off the music. We can just talk about this openly. Yeah. Stamets reveals himself to be an Antizora because of, you know, control. He's worried and about so- it contrelanding him. <laughs> <laughs> and Saru and Culber are like, hey, Zora is a job creator that would never hurt us. <laughs> <laughs> Your analogy is that Zora is a billionaire. Yeah, that is it, it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we should coddle Zora, make Zora feel like a hero in their own mind. Mm. Kovic cuts through the bullshit, though. He's like, look, I'm the authority here, and it's totally in my power to take Zora out of Discovery and put that combination of sphere data and sentience into another host, dot, 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 of their choosing. Yeah, something like Grey, maybe maybe another Golem. Uh And because this is a show that has been written... Adira and Gray walk in right on cue to advocate for this idea utterly. Sir, we want to speak on her behalf. Thank you both, but it's going to be all right. Well, yeah, and Starfleet systems are, we're told, not allowed to have sentient AI installed in them. So 
I, part of what COVID is here to decide is like, is this a sentient AI? And if so, does it violate that rule? And yeah, Lawyer Gray and Lawyer Adira are here to serve as Zora's advocates. Because Adira and Ensign and Gray, uh, a non-crew person, are allowed to just enter whatever part of the ship they want to at any time. <laughs> <laughs> to make the case for whatever they want to make the case for. Yeah. I thought that it was too bad that n- more wasn't made out of the conflict between Adira and Gray and Stamets in this because like they yeah. have made so much of a case of them being family and them being so at odds on this issue felt like it should have had interpersonal implications. That is a valence to the conflict. Absolutely. That's just totally unexplored. Yeah. I wish I wish they'd I totally talked agree. about that a little bit. Yeah. Zora takes this moment to offer up a compromise. I'll give you a button that looks like a butter warmer gift on a wire cutter list (laughs) to kill me with. Yeah. It's a, the second you're worried about is Zora acting in everybody's best interest, you can just punch this button and uh, the sentience will go away and it will go back to being disco plus sphere sphere data minus... (laughs) consciousness nothing speaks to a person's sanity better than uh, the presentation of a weapon to kill them with (laughs) and a request to do that at any point you see fit yeah were you a little distracted by how similar this device wound up looking to the thing that tarka presents in hologram to the assembly I did not get its similarity in that way, no. They're both kind of like faceted, like round objects that, I don't know, like they're not identical, but like Tarka at the assembly is like, I alone can save you from the DMA. And here is how, when I was on the discovery that last time, I got enough data to come up with this weapon it's uh it's a weapon that will destroy the device at the heart of the DMA and uh it's the it's really the only option so uh go ahead and vote for me all right peace tarka out he's a real showman isn't he i got like carnival barker vibes from him in this moment like he's yeah he's very persuasive in my mind i would have been like cool episode over except the music is so ominous <laughs> My proposal carries some risk, but not nearly as much as doing nothing. Part of what really sells me on the idea is how fast the plan goes. He's like, look, man, we just spore jump in, drop the bomb, spore jump out, wham, bam, thank you, DMA. Thank you, Tarka. (laughs) And it's over. And everyone, like, based on music cue is horrified because this weapon is isolytic. And that is something that they're not allowed to have as a weapon because... When you set off isolytic weapons, it has all sorts of bad consequences, like preventing warp travel in that area. This is kind of an interesting argument. And it's kind of one of those things like like a cherry bomb, right? Like if you set off an isolytic weapon and it collapses the DMA, that weapon also explodes on the other side of the wormhole that yeah. it came from. And so it kind of sends a powerful message about your feelings. Regarding the DMA to its creator, a message you might not want to be sending. The 10C would uh, feel this, and we might be inviting the 10C to... uh, (laughs) It's the scientific equivalent of Randy Marsh taking his shirt off. What do you want to do, huh? 
Yeah, I mean, like, like if the DMA is a blunt instrument that is accidentally weapon, not intentionally weapon, it seems like whatever they have that's intentionally weapon would be scary as fuck. Yeah, it's too bad that Tarka couldn't make an isolytic weapon that may or may not be a weapon that just goes about its business and may or may not explode next to the DMA. <laughs> then it's the same. Then it's the same. And then the then the ten C should would certainly understand. Hey, this was just what happened. You know, I was walking across the room swinging my arms wildly. The fact that I punched you in the face is not my fault. It was just that that's where your face happened to be. I think we've made a lot of the melodramatic nature of a Michael Burnham speechification moment, but I found this scene really good for her. Burnham's position is that a bomb only sends one message, but first contact makes it possible to send a bunch of different ones with some nuance. There's, yeah, and, and she is as persuasive as Tarka is. And the fact that she would be the one, you know, it, like Disco becomes the Enola Gay in Tarka's scenario. So yeah, she, she feels like she has a vested interest in this being actually the best idea before they they go do it she's also invested in the idea of diplomacy because she knows she'll be the diplomat involved it's a lot of dirty looks from book over the course of these scenes really looks like cool all right so now that we know what we're voting on uh let's have a brief recess (laughs) if anybody needs to like uh confer with their buddies or whatever we'll get some of these hungry aliens some lunch (laughs) and we'll get that guy a sweater yeah. Pretty similar conversation as being had in parallel pack on the disco where Gray is saying like, hey, um, this kill switch thing is a really bad deal for Zora and just for precedent in general. Like if weird one off consciousnesses were things that we were just in the habit of being able to kill at the press of a button, neither Adira nor I would be here. And that kind of pulls Culber over onto their side, which was another mo- moment where I wanted Stamets to be like, what the fuck? I can't believe my family is betraying me or whatever, you know? It isn't the same thing. Did it irritate you that you didn't know how the kill switch worked? I mean, it looked like an egg timer to me, so. If you push the button, two things will happen. Right, but I wanted to know exactly. Yeah. Like, is it just a fucking easy button? That you get from a Staples, right. or is it, or is it something with a couple of switches, like that you turn keys on at the same time? Right. Yeah, you need two people. Like, how dangerous is it to even have in the room for fear of accidental <laughs> termination? Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Somebody is like gesticulating and accidentally bumps it. <laughs> like, cool. Zora made a kill switch, but the kill switch is so hard to operate that like no one in the room even knows you how have to solve a five-sided Rubik's cube. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Come on, Zora. <laughs> I'm I'm with you, Ben. I think I think a greater amount of conflict between Gray, Adira, and Stamets and Culber would help obscure the real problem I had with an ensign's opinion mattering in a context like this. Like yeah. I still maintain Adira and Gray are there because we wrote them there as a show instead of there being a real reason for them to be there and for their opinion to matter at all in this context. Like, could you imagine being the bridge crew outside, seeing Gray and Adira walk into this meeting? Marching. (laughs) With their ability to have their voices heard. The show's all about being seen and heard. Guess who isn't being seen and heard? 
Yeah. Every other bridge crew person. Reese just like pulls a fucking phaser out and sticks it in his mouth. (laughs) That weird alien with like the giant trilobite head. Yeah. Like sticks a phaser in a hole like, oh, I wouldn't have expected that to be the mouth, but yeah. There it is. After I was separated from Squidira, everybody listens to <laughs> to Adira, and not, nobody listens to Squid. <laughs> Doesn't anyone see that this is wrong? You know what? There's there's no one for Squid to exchange grief currency with. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of this scene, they ask Zora about her primary function, and it is to... Can you out? You know what the streets for me. That's not the core programming of a ship's computer. I'm a thousand percent on pull the plug on Zora here at this moment in the episode. (laughs) Book and Michael Burnham have found themselves in one of those relationships where one person is a liberal Democrat and the other person is a conservative Republican. But I don't think Book gets a vote here, does he? I don't know. If- this goes back to the question of whether or not his world or lack of world gives him voting rights in this in this context. But he has an opinion about which- This is what's so confusing about a hands up or don't raise your hand vote. Yeah. Because you can't tell by Book keeping his hand down if he gets to vote at all. Well, yeah, and it's also very having hands normative in a way. It really that, is. I thought that was a disgusting display by Rillick there. Yeah, yeah. Like, there are squid aliens, right? Yeah. What are the Baul supposed to do? Hold up their gooey <laughs> limb? Yeah, and how many, how many tentacles equals a hand? Yeah. Fucked up. I think we need to impeach President Rillick. If she could only hear herself. Raise your hand. Why the very name is racist. Yeah. Burnham asks Rillick what side of the argument she would prefer, and Rillick's like, don't don't ask me, I'm the judge. Yeah. Rillick is uh has has recused herself from from uh from voting because she it was so hard for her just to like convince everybody to show up. Imagine a president without an opinion yeah. on legislation. What the fuck is this? What does what would you say? You do here, President <laughs> Rillick. Also, why is Admiral Bottle Service not the one here casting the vote? It, like, why Why does that fall to Michael Burnham? I do not get it. Other than that Rillick, like, kind of relies on Michael Burnham in these po- political moments. Um, does Burnham not realize she's being kind of used by Rillick? I mean, yeah, like, like... Kind of the inverse of what Tarka was talking about, Rillick using Michael Burnham the way Tarka's talking about using the politicians. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, if you uh, if you feel like you're up to it or whatever, you could make an argument for the diplomacy angle, but uh, psh, I don't really have a say in the matter. Yeah, so things hang on kind of Rillick's encouragement for Michael Burnham to get involved. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, Nothing stays in place, and it's the one area 
where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next gen skin safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals, and they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Book and Tarka have another conversation that goes a little bit better than their first one because I think they're starting to realize that they are aligned on the issue of the day. And Tarka realizes that Book may be the person to make the the plea on team blow the hell out of the DMA. And he reveals that he has this long con going where what he really wants is the power source behind the DMA. He wants to use it to go to this other parallel universe like if if the mirror universe is bad the one that he wants to go to is like totally ideal no burn no no dma no emerald chain 
Papa, thank you for the dog. You know that song, Imagine? It's kind of like that in my universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And this is like where they talk about the trauma of having been imprisoned by the Emerald Chain. And also that Tarka has a has a scientist buddy, maybe a romantic partner that's already there. Anyway, I have to go home. What the fuck is this, Ben? Tarka's like, you couldn't imagine the kind of chess I'm playing over here on my side of the show. Yeah. Because I'm just going to let it slip in this public space <laughs> that, that I'm basically fucking Sting from Star Trek Generations trying to get myself back into the ribbon. Yeah. And I need the power source in order to do it. It's amazing to me that Book is vulnerable enough as a character and still scarred enough about the destruction of his planet that he does not see this for the heel turn that it is, like the unmasking of the villain that it is. Right. That's exactly what's happened here, Ben, because it's not about doing the right thing. It's not about solving a science problem. Right. It's about Tarka doing the right thing for Tarka. And for Book to be in this scene going like, well, if we can do right by Tarka, I can also exact the revenge that I'm now interested in. Is a heel turn for Book, too. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of believe it. Like, I kind of believe yeah. that Book is that mad that he, I, like, yeah. doesn't see it, you know? Yeah. He's dad mad. He's dad <laughs> Yeah. Hey, if he were in uh, in England mm -hmm. and uh, and he were also into like getting a wank magazine mm -hmm. would he be uh lad mag dad mad <laughs> yes <laughs> yes he would oh uh, yes he would you know there are a lot of scientists on star trek discovery the comedy scientists hmm. on this side of the show yeah they don't get uh they don't get their due <laughs> no um yeah so uh it's voting time ben yeah book is fucking book asks for and is granted permission to make a speech, even though, as we've said before, he does not have a planet to come from. And he advocates for that dead planet yeah. and for the bomb before the DMA takes more planets like his off the board. He makes a very compelling argument. It's like, this is fucking dangerous, granted, but this thing has destroyed my planet. So not doing anything is dangerous too. It's not like, like, the un the way to undercut this argument, though, is nobody is saying not doing anything. We are saying not use <laughs> use like not go to war as the first reaction. Like yeah, like, yeah. Doing nothing isn't nothing. Doing nothing is diplomacy. On behalf of all who have been lost, please end this now. Ben, this is a applause-worthy speech yeah. that book gives. The biggest problem I have in this episode, an episode that I have a lot of problems with, is the framing of Michael Burnham at the end of the speech. Because we where can't we, see her We hands. don't get it. She's kind of moving as if she's clapping under the frame. Do you think she's clapping or she's not? It looks like she's clapping to me. It looks that way to me too, but you've got to show it if she is. I don't understand cropping it out yeah yeah the camera either gets further back or or something like 
I feel like maybe they had one take and they decided in the edit that they didn't want to show her clapping because that would send the wrong message about how Michael felt about how she was going to vote. Yeah, but if if that's true, then crop in further. So that yeah. it, like I like we see her shoulder, you know, like all we can make of that is like seeing like the fabric on her shoulder react right. to the clap. Yeah. Um but and like, they could insert other footage of Burnham in this same location to do the same thing if she's not clapping. Right, right. This part really, it really bumped me big time because it it's very meaningful if she is. Yeah, I agree. You think it's a sympathy clap? Like, like nice speech, book. I don't agree with you, but I defend you to the death your right to, to say it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess a I love you and I understand why you made that speech, but I don't agree with it. Clap. <laughs> I don't agree with a sympathy clap, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. I think you clap if it's sincere and you don't if if you don't. Yeah. That's why you tell people not to fucking clap when we do a greatest gen live show, right? Please clap. Rilke asks if there is anyone who would op- oppose the marriage of the Federation and the bomb to speak now <laughs> or forever hold your peace. Yeah. And then Michael waits and waits and waits. And she's like, I don't want to just let someone set us up the bomb. I got to yeah. talk. I got to let the wringing of my hands stop from all that enthusiastic clapping. She says, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the big captain's speech. And then we cut away. What the fuck? You got to make it last longer, man. We got away to the like uh, hard drive defragmentation of Zora scene. <laughs> yeah. Where uh, they're going into Zora's system going like, what is making Zora a person all of a sudden? And Adira has spent enough time in Zora's system that they're able to point out a, uh, a, a subsystem they pull this out, and there's like a map of Paris. And Adira's like, this is a map of Paris that I found in here that's unlike any of the other code around it. And I always attributed it to this being a weird old spaceship. But this is actually a new thing. And this seems to be the locus of Zora's personhood. And they open it up. They like double-click this folder labeled tax documents. And they get to look at Zora's dreams. It's basically a clip show file. Yeah. Is this what happens when Zora takes a disco nap? (laughs) Such fucking bullshit. (laughs) Why is that bullshit? That's fun. If Zora is truly to be the sentient being that we are told Zora is, Zora should feel a great amount of antipathy about people watching her dreams (laughs) and whatever's in those dreams. Because I tell you one thing, Ben, you pull my clip show hard drive about about what I'm dreaming about. Yeah. I'm going to stick a phaser in some part of my head and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. We watch a lot of Star Trek Discovery footage here in this moment. The upshot is this is like Zora's, the, the shit Zora cares about the most. This is... There, there's no way that Zora like made this file and and spoofed this. Uh, this is this is Zora's true love. Zora is a good person. Is a conclusion that they're able to reach pretty quickly. I think it, I think that's premature. <laughs> that's a good person disobey an order. 
I don't think so. Well, if the good person is not in the chain of command yet, a good person might. We get a pretty deftly edited sequence here where Burnham's speech is intercut with Stamets's doubts. Yeah. About Zora. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they rolled the end credits music for this. <laughs> thought so too. A uh, very confusing for a sight impaired person enjoying Star Trek Discovery, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Stamets on his fears, but the the kind of thread that connects them is the we need not react from a place of fear. Like fear should not be the emotion that guides our decisions. And this is Stamets coming around to that while Michael Burnham makes a forceful argument for that in two different contexts, but also an argument about trust and trust being earned and what Stamets concludes on is like if Zora wants us to trust Zora then Zora needs to trust us too that's a two-way street Zora yeah we really need to build trust with the billionaire who could do whatever she wants (laughs) because she has unlimited resources tax Zora (laughs) yeah the burden should really be on us to build those bridges you're right I mean for Michael Burnham's part Book was permitted to make an entire speech without being interrupted. And this is another moment that makes Book look very bad because he gets all up in there during Burnham's speech, interrupting her. We can move forward as a united front. Some differences are too great. At multiple points until finally it's time to vote. And it's a hand raise form of voting, Ben, that you commented on earlier, which is just insanely problematic on a number of levels. And it's not anonymous either. Like, set aside the idea that you need a, a, a limb to do this. Like, you have to do this in front of everyone. Right. They don't trust the mail-in ballot system in this future. You don't go to, like, an Eagles Hall that you never noticed before in order to, to go cast a paper ballot. All those in favor of peaceful efforts at first contact, please raise a hand. Election night with Wolf Blitzer is uh, one of those ones where uh, where we get to go to bed early. Uh, we get the results very quickly. How much do you think they thought about whether or not raising your hand meant dropping a bomb versus raising a hand meant peace? Oh, interesting. I bet they thought a lot about that, like how it would look. Because yeah. what you see are people raising their hands for peace and... I want to say that it hits a little bit differently than if you were to go around the room and knowing every person who raised their hand, even if you didn't know them like you know Trina or some of the other characters, right? to know that that meant something far darker. I also wondered how much they thought about it being a close vote or not, because I'm happy that the vote goes the way it does. I think that that's... They cut to Larry David and he decided not to vote. Like he got in some sort of agreement with a guy in line yeah. about them canceling each other out. And yeah. he's the reason. His fault. Yeah. No, I mean, I, um, I'm i glad that it was, it was, it went the way it was. But like you, one of the big challenges of living in a democracy is learning to cope with it when you're, when the vote doesn't go your, your way. Like they rack the camera up into the chronometer on the wall and it says January 6th, <laughs> yeah. 3264. Yeah. Like, cause that's like how pissed book is, right? Like he fucking yeah. storms out. 
we we break away from this. It's to, the first mission that Burnham's going to go on without him. Yeah. We break away from this to negotiate the entry of Zora into Starfleet as a specialist, which is, you know, good news for the chain of command and for Michael Burnham being able to order the ship to do shit. Could you imagine you're a computer with a thousand years of knowledge and experience and you've got to report to Adira in the hierarchy? <laughs> God. Fucking slap in the face to Zora. You got to stick a pip on Zora, don't you? Yeah, yeah. There's just huge pip on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> a saucer-sized pip. <laughs> well, we can't see outside the view screen anymore. Cool, Zora. Your fucking vanity pip <laughs> makes it impossible to run the ship now. We got a huge blind spot. <laughs> we didn't see that fucking bird of prey bearing down on us. It's your fucking fault. They're like, well, I guess we're not going to need the kill switch anymore, right? Yeah. Kovic, interestingly, is still leaning toward extraction toward the end mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. But uh, but Stamets has changed his tune. And they're like, okay, so we can, we can uh, get rid of that kill switch. And Stamets is like, allow me. And he goes, and he accidentally pushes the button and kills Zora. And then we get the credits. <laughs> <laughs> we tune in next week to Star Trek Discovery, and it's just the credits I show open. <laughs> so, so Zora is a Starfleet now, or will be soon. And we get a scene with Adira and Gray. Seems like Adira and Gray will not be on the episode next week because Gray is getting written off the show. Yeah. He's going to the same farm upstate that Tilly went to a couple episodes ago. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, did you hear the? there's some speculation that Tilly is going to be the star of the Starfleet Academy show that Kurtzman has teased a few times? I heard that. I also heard that Tilly is coming back this season. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing to stop Tilly from being a, a recurring guest star on Disco, right? Yeah, except a bad decision. That yeah. would stop that from happening. Yeah. Make a good decision. Bring he, Tilly back. I mean, I think it was a bad decision to take Tilly out of the main cast because I, I love Same. having Tilly on disco. But uh, yeah, more Tilly, por favor. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely not there to have a meal because you don't eat at the gaming table in the lounge. There's that moment between Gray and Adira where they're saying all the things about their being optimism for a long distance thing. But when you see the reverse shot of Adira's face on that hug, yeah, I think you know Adira has come to terms with letting Gray go. I mean, I think that this- Gotta is, let that bird fly. Yeah. Yeah. And like teenagers always imagine that they're going to stay in their relationship when one person goes to state and one person goes to city, you know? <laughs> yeah. That is like a totally plausible- naivete for them to have in their relationship right now but i don't i don't i i think that a breakup is is in the works for these these characters for sure i think a breakup would help us know these characters better than how it's gone when they're together yeah i mean so i'm actually rooting for it yeah yeah i i would say that maybe the most science fiction concept star trek could possibly (laughs) introduce would be a long distance relationship between teenagers actually working yeah. Yeah, don't make that mistake. <laughs> that's a that's a utopian future that is just a little bit too implausible. You know, one relationship I am 
growing more and more excited about, Ben. Yeah. Trina and Saru shippers unite. Yeah. Saru brings Trina a plant as a gift, and uh, I think a plant has a great significance as mm-hmm. a gift to mm-hmm. a Kelpian. Get a room, you two. Yeah. <laughs> he says, this is the one flower that didn't burn to a crisp in my in my quarters <laughs> last episode. <laughs> I held this uncomfortable pot of plants <laughs> in my ass in the transport buffer <laughs> for 16 hours. I got dysentery, of course. Yeah. And now I give this plant to you, Trina. Tearful goodbye from Stamets and Culber to Gray and Adira, who uh, no love lost between any of them. Uh, despite the huge conflict they all had between them this episode. And then uh, we cut down to Book's ship where Tarka is installing Spore Drive 2.0, the Spore Drive Nano, the little guy. Yeah, the device everyone thinks is a good idea to have, but then, you know, like in practice, you just realize it's too little to be useful. Yeah. It doesn't have all the controls on it that you like to see. Like I want to know... Who the artist is. Like, put it on, give a screen. Tiny size has diminishing returns sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Book winds up leaving Grudge the Cat in Michael Burnham's quarters with a super duper futuristic post-it note saying, like, please look after the cat. And uh, he and Tarka spore jump off to do some fucked up shit. Like, the look on Burnham's face is so telling. She is destroyed yeah. By the idea of having to take care of this fucking cat now. <laughs> what a betrayal. <laughs> like on top of everything else she has to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a nightmare. Did you like this episode, Adam? This episode was crazy, right? The episode tries to make logical sense of why it's okay to deal with Zora the way that it does by constructing story guardrails to it. But those guardrails are made of flimsy paper mache. There's nothing to them. You have to get on this episode's level to not see the holes in the logic here. But the cost of admission to enjoying Star Trek Discovery is getting on its level in a lot of ways. So, Jesus, man, are you saying you must be this dumb to ride this ride? (laughs) That is a fucking harsh read. I feel like I'm the Ben of two episodes ago, but I think this is a low point in the logic of the series in what it's asking you to accept from some very smart characters. Hmm. And... I really hope it's going somewhere that's worth it to the extent that you forget all of these bad choices these characters are making that are not in keeping with their intelligence. I got to say, I'm I'm really on the other side of this one from you. I felt real like warm, fuzzy vibes from this one. And it really reminded me of the kind of conflict that, for example, the... TNG crew had with the nanites that were eating their central computer core that had become sentient and um, and you know that sentience needed to first be ascertained un- and understood and then grappled with and I really liked seeing these characters go through kind of a modern version of that kind of story and 
after season four, episode five, I was feeling pretty low on discovery and, and the last episode in this one really turned me around. I felt uh, a lot better about these last two episodes. And I think that this episode is for sure not without its problems. I think that there are plenty of moments that could have been better. I think my primary criticism being that the family of choice conflict between Stamets and Culber and Gray and Adira just got completely ignored while they were talking about the like metaphysics of consciousness or whatever. But um, aside from that, I thought it was a really terrific episode and I, I, I kind of am on team episode seven. Wow. There you are. I think that's maybe the greatest reason why cats love you. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Well, do you want to see if we have any priority one messages, Adam? I love those. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, we have a priority one message here. It's from Andy K. It's to you and me. Whoa. And the message goes like this. Merry Christmas, Ben and Adam. Who is your drunkest Shimoda for season four of Discovery so far? Wow. My favorite is Admiral Men's Catalog Model for expensive dress shirts, but doesn't make a big deal about it with his friends and family. (laughs) That's a nice admiral name right there, Andy Kay. Pretty solid bit of business there. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't been on the last three episodes. I suppose for Discovery, this would be the Edwardest Larkin, Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the Edward Larkin of my heart for Discovery is Tilly. And I'm so sad that she's gone. I feel like I'm just going to, like, make her my overall just for that reason. For that reason alone. The math might not line up to support my argument, but I'm still I'm still shipping Saru and Trina so hard. I'm really proud of Saru for, for uh, carving out a bit of time for love mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this season while all hell breaks loose around him. Yeah. Like... This has been the season with the most big challenges for everyone on the crew. Yeah, look at him. Yeah. He's choosing love. Dumping out those threat ganglia. Good for him. Yeah. It's really nice. So work. yeah, my I mean, check back in later on. I think my answer is going to change as the season goes on, but as of this episode, those are our answers. Could evolve at any time. Thanks to Andy K for sending us that priority one message. You can join Andy K by going to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron. Hey, listen, priority one messages are are a really important way to support the production of the show. So if you care about it, and I know you do, go to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron. Yeah. Fill out an easy to complete form <laughs> with a message if you're choosing. Ben and I Ben and I love to read messages to people for all sorts of moments in their lives, birthdays, holidays. True. Traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, celebrating their relationships. Celebrating the highs and the lows. Everything in between. Yeah, if you're high, get a Jumbotron. <laughs> we'll get pimped into your impressions. We'll do whatever it takes. It's MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself an Edward Larkin? <laughs> There's an answer to this. I know you've got the answer to this. Why don't you tell me your answer first, Adam? <laughs> it's obviously book. Yeah, that that uh 
not seeing the villain unmasking himself for the trees <laughs> that Book does is pretty bad. He doesn't give a shit. We've been a lot of episodes trying to help Book get over his trauma, and he just categorically refuses. Yeah, Book put us in the ball kicking machine. It's brutal. Well, uh, God, I mean, you know what? I hope we get a bottle episode next week where it's it's the Book and Tarka show <laughs> in Book's Enola Gay ship, like yeah. ready to set us up the bomb. What are we going to get next week, Ben? I mean, it kind of feels like it could be a dogfight between Disco and Book's ship. Yeah, and they both have spore drives, so they could go anywhere at any time. It'll be like that transporter gun chase fight scene in the season three episode one. It'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be weird. Well, um, that will be next week's episode. We don't have a title or description yet, but uh, I'm really looking forward to it. A lot more so than I am, whatever these credits are. Hey, quick correction. Star Trek Discovery is taking its mid-season hiatus, which means next week's episode will be about Star Trek Prodigy. Coming back from its own mid-season hiatus to replace Discovery for a bunch of weeks before Discovery returns to finish out Season 4. You'll want to join us for that. Star Trek Prodigy is a lot of fun, especially if you're a Star Trek Voyager fan. Plus, it will be our new producer's first shows with us. I hope you'll join us in welcoming Wendy Pretty to the Uxbridge Shimoda family. Support for the show comes from ads, P1s, and the generous support of our viewers like you. You can support the show monthly by going to MaximumFun.org join. See you next week for another episode of The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.